Yes, the peak is back for 2023 with great recommendations from people working in the broad fields of history and international and current affairs. They sift through all that's out there to give you some of the special gems to read, watch and listen to. This month, the very busy Stephen Jedgetts joins us in between filing stories about the Asia-Pacific. He's the ABC's foreign affairs reporter. Hi, Stephen. Hello, Geraldine. And staying in the region of Southeast Asia, Dr Amrita Mali is an historian at Flinders and the ANU, and she's a senior policy advisor in international development. She's your second guide to the top tips on the pick. Hi there, Amrita. Hi, Geraldine. So in Australia, the Federal Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, recently was mocked in some quarters, but most definitely not mocked in others for writing this essay about the economy. And we concentrated on it last week in Saturday Extra. You have delved, by contrast, into another interesting tilt at windmills, a 178-page book written by Anwar Ibrahim, the Prime Minister of Malaysia. What's it called and what's it about? Well, it's called Script, uh, and it is indeed a full-length book. And uh, Anwar released it in October last year, which was around a month before uh, the election that made him Prime Minister. Is it a manifesto or, because I've been reading about it, it's very interesting. It's sort of amusing about a better world, a sort of framework for resilience, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's a combination of things, and he quite explicitly says it isn't a manifesto as such. Uh, Basically what it does is it outlines in English uh, the ideas that form his new Malaysia Madani framework, uh, which is Anwar's government's slogan for a new civic values campaign. Uh, And the title in English is an acronym that stands for Sustainability, Compassion, Respect, Innovation, Prosperity and Trust. It's called Uh, Script script for a Better Malaysia. It's quite cute. It is. (laughs) And so these uh, ideas are discussed in the book as fields of action uh, or a framework consisting of these drivers, he refers to them as drivers, uh, for building a viable, quote, viable, dynamic and inclusive Malaysian future. Uh, And it's basically, it's a series of musings, as you say. And who does he draw on to write this? Like what, yes, are there big sort of intellectual prophets whom he draws on? Yeah, well, this is a very interesting uh, feature of the book in the sense that it's kind of a showcase of everything that Anwar's been reading over his many decades of thinking as an activist, intellectual and politician. So it was written in collaboration with the Centre for Post-Normal Policy and Future Studies, uh, which is an interesting outfit led by a renowned British Muslim intellectual, Ziauddin Sardan, who was Anwar's education advisor, actually, in the late 1980s. Uh, So since then, he's been a writer, a broadcaster, a critic, even a human rights commissioner. Uh, And listeners might know him as the editor of the quarterly journal Critical Muslim. Uh, And so this centre for post-normal studies is his consultancy firm, basically. Um, And then on top of that close collaboration, the book also draws on, you know, the thinking of a range of Malaysian and international intellectuals. So, you know, economists like Onku Aziz and Jilma Sundaram. There's a sociologist, Syed Hussein Alatas, and, you know, international leading lights like sociologists like Zygmunt Bauman and an Australian historian, Anthony Milner. Anthony, oh, Tony Milner, oh, he's a friend of the programme, yeah. right. And mm. even going right back to Antonio Gramsci, which, of course, is the Italian intellectual who's influenced, well, you know, so many people uh, of, of yeah. a slightly progressive, I was going to say left, but it's actually not that. It's a complex, his, his um, legacy, I'd say. 
Well, certainly his legacy has been used and, and, you know, deployed by all sorts of different types of figures. And and in this case, they paraphrase Gramsci um, in in terms of explaining what they mean by post-normal times. So basically, they refer to these times as a kind of an in-between period where the old ideas are dying and the new ones have not emerged, uh, which is a very famous Gramscian formulation. Um, And so in the meantime, in this in-between space, uh, we're, you know, left with with monsters, really. And so in in Anwar's uh, book, these monsters are things like mismanagement, corruption, cronyism, uh, etc. And it's it's also really interesting the way it draws on another genre of literature, which I found uh, really, uh, you know, really curious. So there's a, a genre, I guess, of crisis literature, mm. um, and listeners might be familiar with Adam Tooze. Uh, also, another um, writer called Nassim Nicholas Taleb, who's um, written books on, uh, you know, the black swan phenomenon, and and his book Anti Fragile is basically a prescription for you know a series of personal and political attitude adjustments to build our resilience, because essentially we may live out our lives in a time of endless rolling crises. Uh, And so it's very frank about that. And what are the practical ideas he suggests? Well, essentially, he doesn't really sound very prescriptive in the book. He talks about floods, climate change, the pandemic, poverty, inequality, gig economy, you know, all sorts of things that are frankly, you know, really irritating Malaysians in, in, in lots of different ways and and talks about, you know, a few loose ideas in terms of how best to begin a process. So he's really talking about guiding uh, and I suppose convening uh, a discussion where Malaysians talk about how to repair their exhausted society after, you know, the political ructions of, of the last few years. Uh, and so it sounds like it's essentially a prescription for a series of workshops. Uh, And basically, he will guide Malaysians through figuring out uh, what to do. And I think one of the most interesting things about it is it's not a pitch for democratic reforms. Uh, It doesn't talk about a democratic transition, although it does talk about, you know, democratic values. But ultimately, I think it it's trying to shake off the constraints created by those expectations. Uh, And now, of course, you know, Anwar is leading a government made up of long-term frenemies, uh, and they are presumably going to lead this process of figuring out uh, just how much Malaysia will change and in which direction. Well, I suppose that's the fascinating thing is is whether Malaysians do take it up and and use various parts of it to to move forward. Uh, I mean, Mm. Stephen, I I think that you have not been thinking quite like this. Uh, You've been wedged between children's books at bedtime and Department of Foreign Affairs <laughs> reports. I don't know how much extra time you've got for this sort of um, good intellectual, you know, playing. Um, what are you reading? Well, I've I've chosen something a little bit different because you're right, I do read an awful lot of foreign policy uh, documents <laughs> during my working hours and then when I get home, uh, I have a two-year-old and a five-year-old, so there's an endless trail of uh, of picture books for the, for the little one, and then um, a slightly more advanced <laughs> books, but still kids' books, obviously for the five-year-old. So uh, when I finally get to pick up a book for myself, it's in that sort of 15-minute window before I collapse uh, into bed or when I'm about to fall asleep. Uh, but the the book that I've been working my way through rather slowly at the moment is absolutely gripping. It's actually a, a, a bit of, if you like, popular history. Uh, uh, it's called Rubicon, The Triumph and Tragedy of the Roman Republic by oh, Tom yes. Holland, who's not only a great uh, writer, but also does a brilliant podcast and is, is a wonderful broadcaster as well. He's he's very much a, a man that has the, the capacity to bring... Uh, the ancient past to life and to make the, the, the characters who inhabit it or which in, who, who inhabited it uh, and bring them into the present in, in really compelling ways. 
and and Rubicon is just a great read because um, in many in many ways it traverses pretty familiar territory. Uh, in particular, he looks at the, uh, the the Roman Republic. So pretty much, you know, the sort of I guess the sort of two hundred years or so leading up to uh, Julius Caesar and then of course Augustus uh, bringing the uh, the Roman Republic to an end and establishing uh, imperial rule. Um, and it's just a fascinating account of the way that Roman institutions developed and then were put under enormous strain uh, up until the up until the, the early sort of imperial period uh, the way that those institutions uh, splintered in many ways um, under under the pressure uh, of uh, of these competing enormous personalities uh, the way that things that but were, were for a, a few hundred years unfathomable, such as people leading Roman legions into Rome suddenly mm. became acceptable. Not first with Julius Caesar, of course, but uh, with uh, with uh, Sulla before him, about fifty or thirty or forty years earlier. Uh, and look, the cast of characters in this is just dazzling. You know, not just Augustus and Julius Caesar, Pompey, Cicero, Sulla, all of these familiar ones, but also the the cast of characters who are slightly less well known but are equally look, compelling. You're, you're preaching to the conv- here. We're all Tom Holland fans at Saturday Extra and um, um, the rest is history, I think, is mentioned about every second pick. Uh, so, look, yes. thank you very much uh, for that. Now, I want to move on to what you both are watching. What has you glued to the screen, Stephen? Well, I, this is terrible, but I had to. I had to go with Encanto, which is not <laughs> which is not my pick. It is my children's pick. Uh, but I have almost no time to watch anything that my kids are not watching at the moment. So, it's a yeah, it's a it's an animated fantasy. Uh, and when we were all effectively confined to the house uh, a couple of weeks ago with uh, with uh, COVID. Encanto was one of the things that we put on, and I just found it utterly enrapturing. Uh, it's Disney. It's a it's a musical. It's probably aimed for slightly older kids than my kids. So my five year old loved it. My two year old was sort of entranced, but was a little bit young for it. Uh, it's all about a family called the Madrigals uh, who uh, live in the mountains in a place called Encanto, which is essentially a a sort of fantasy realm created solely by the matriarch of the family through an enchanted candle that creates it when uh, they come under a severe uh, threat. Um, and it's beautifully, like the score is entrancing. Um, you know, uh, there's one hit from it. Um, we don't talk about Bruno, which I think might be one of the most popular songs of the last year, full stop, not just for kids. Uh, the characters are wonderful. The animation is dazzling. Yes, it is hackneyed and predictable in parts. That's unavoidable. I, I found it genuinely okay, touching. Okay, lovely. I'll, I'll, I'll put that on my little list. Okay, now, I'm Rita, for your pick, you say it's time to return to what? Wakanda. They came from the water. They had superhuman strength. He's coming for the surface world. That can't be good. Yes, that's an excerpt from Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. And Rita, is that the is this the second Black Panther movie? Is it? It is. Yeah, it's the second film. Um, the first one came out in 2018, and um, of course, both of them are based on the Marvel Comics character, the Black Panther. And what is it that really gets you in? Well, 
basically, I really enjoy the way both the films imagine um, these autonomous, never colonized societies. So, you know, in the in the first film, we were introduced to Wakanda, which is on the African continent, um, and its location is kept hidden by impassable mountains and jungles, but also by these high tech screens and holographic projections. And essentially, these things work together to keep it safe from American and European colonial. Power. Uh, it's also protected by the Black Panther, who was a prince of Wakanda, uh, who ingested a herb enriched by vibranium, um, which gave him superhuman powers. And, you know, as far as the Wakandans know, at the end of the last film, it is the only place you can find this thing called vibranium, which is the strongest metal in the world. It's bulletproof uh, and it can actually deflect uh, kinetic energy and high energy blast so it can deflect attacks. Um, and in Wakandan society, it's the various applications of vibranium that make it so wealthy um, and advanced. Um, now, in the second film, uh, there's a twist to this whole story, which is that the Wakandans discover that there's another society, this time under the ocean, uh, that also escaped colonization. And uh, in uh, in this case, it's a kind of um, um, a pan sort of um, Latin American, uh, pan Mesoamerican and South American identity that is um, the source material for this new civilization. Right. Uh, now, it also has, yeah, and it also has vibranium, um, which really surprises the Wakandans. So they've got a um, competitive. Because, you know, that's right. And, and it too, this society as well called Talakan, uh, has also relied on the mineral to maintain its autonomy. Um, now, this society is ruled by a king who ultimately launches an attack on Wakanda because, uh, you know, he tries to convince the Wakandans to help him take revenge on the colonizers. And when Wakanda basically declines, uh, the film is then led through uh, a discussion about how to deal with the legacy of colonial conquest. So in this sense, it's very much like the last film where there was a, a kind of a contest between two princes or two, okay. you know, potential rulers of Wakanda, uh, one of whom wanted to lead a revolution against the world order, which was, you know, obviously shaped and created by the colonial conquest of most of the world. Um, but the ultimately the Wakandan prince uh, argued okay. for a, a peaceful, autonomous development. Uh, and so in the end, he won and became uh, the ruler of Wakanda. We, we will leave people thinking about that. It's obviously quite thought-provoking. And I want to move briefly to the world of audio because you've both got some interesting picks here. Uh, Stephen, you include the Seneca podcast, which I just heard about this week. What is it and why do you listen to this series? Well, Seneca, someone once compared it to Seinfeld for people who were sort of really deeply embedded in the sort of China-America slash foreign policy podcast space in the sense that it started well before the uh, sort of plethora of other foreign policy slash China podcasts that are, uh, that are, that are buzzing around at the moment. Uh, look, it's basically a, you know, roughly weekly or so podcast that comes out every week on China. That's all it is. It's largely hosted by a guy called Kaiser Guo, who's uh, an American um, who spent a long time in China and who in some ways straddles the two cultures. Um, and they've been going for a good decade or so with just the most excellent weekly chats on what is happening within China. They draw heavily on, yes, a lot of academics, but not just academics, other people, journalists, authors, uh, people from the World Bank, multilateral institutions, foreign policy specialists, just trying to break down exactly what is happening in China today, in particular, its implications for foreign policy. Now, it's uh, not one that many people who have sort of deep in the world of foreign policy probably haven't heard about before, but, but for a lot of people who are very interested in foreign 
policy, uh, but who aren't specialists, they may not have heard of it before. So I just point them towards it because it's just an excellent weekly account of contemporary China done really well. That's exactly what I heard put. Okay, now, uh, you're, Amrita, you're suggesting the latest version of the computer game Civilizations, which was a fabulous game, Civilizations 6. Uh, what does it offer? Because it's had a, a, a great long legacy, of course, Civilizations. Yeah, well, one thing it offers is um, an alternative to reading foreign policy white papers. Um, you know, uh, it, it is a it is a way of processing, um, you know, ideas about the world and the world system and and how uh, civilizations compete for position within that system. Uh, you know, which which also goes to show that you know there's there's a very um, widespread sort of popular mode of interacting with ideas about um, you know the world uh, that uh, really are provided in these sorts of cultural products and and actually. Yeah, that's my criticism of it. Even though it's a great game, I've been really enjoying it. It actually has the effect of socialising people into the idea that the world consists of discrete civilizations um, that don't borrow from each other. Each one has its own lane, uh, and ultimately they have to compete um, for primacy. So, you know, the way it works is you start by founding a city, uh, and you work through a series of decisions about how you're going to expand and prosper, a bit like Wakanda, really. So you develop basic technologies to start with, like animal husbandry, archery. Um, you develop basic civics and policies, like perhaps you might focus on crafts. Um, perhaps you decide you want to be led by a god king. And as you go on, you discover that you're not alone. So actually you're in competition with other civilizations and there's a whole range of them. So I like to play as Scythia because I like those Eurasian horse raiders. Um, but you can choose Arabia, the Ottomans, Nubia, Ethiopia, India, China, Indonesia, the Maori, you know, a whole lot of different um, civilizational um, characters and, and characteristics. Uh, and you have to basically compete with the others to find your way in the world from uh, ancient times all the way through to the nuclear age and, and even beyond. Hopefully um, resilient as, uh, as Anwar Ibrahim wishes us to, to be. Um, thank you so much indeed, Stephen Jedges and, uh, and Amrita Mali. I do appreciate all those marvellous suggestions. You're very welcome. No problem. Thanks Thanks for having us. And Stephen is the ABC's foreign affairs reporter. I'm Rita Marley, an historian at Flinders um, and the ANU. Head to the Saturday Extra website for details of their picks. And here's some of the music playing under me from the computer game Civilization VI which Amrita recommended. Now, next week, we hope to return to the education debate, by the way, uh, that we started here last week uh, because we sampled it anyway because the Education Minister, Justin Clare, will be governing a year-long debate about how we spend the altogether $72 billion that is available as state and territories to actually improve student performance. So that's to come and I would like to mention Rear Vision's latest uh, episode called The Battle for the Soul of the Catholic Church. While ideological battles in the church are not unusual, as a lot of us would know, it's rare they're aired so publicly with the Pope under such sustained attack. So what is going on there? Um, as you know, Rear Vision always does a great um, job in explaining and throwing forward to what might be coming. Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.